0: Featuring tales to terrify and far fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the district I of Wonders. Come and find yours.
1: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 573. I am your host. Tony C. Smith, hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy, end of the month, yes, Mr J.J. Campanella is coming up at the end of the show, so that is something fantastic to look forward to as well, and I mean we are right at the end of the month this year as well, but we have, oh, we have a story by Ian Waits, Montpellier coming up, oh! That is fantastic. Ian Waits was when Starship Silver first kicked off. Man, I was I was hitting Ian for stories way back then. And he was kind enough to give us them. It's just amazing to be able to kind of, you know, now in our time we're kind of paying for stories, actually give a little back to Ian. <laughs> yes, why not, eh? Why not? So that is coming up. So Patreon is exact. I'm not joking. Exactly the same. It is just unbelievable how it's the same 437. It has been that for. I'm. Is it been a month there now? So it's just. I mean, it fluctuates when I'm kind of checking it over all the time. It's up and down, up and down. But all you know, oh, I've just noticed there, it's actually it's went up one. So that means we have a big thank you, and it is T J Berg. Thank you so much, T J. Awesome. Awesome indeed. Thank you. So hello and welcome to our Patreon. That is fantastic. And don't forget, if you're on the £10 pledge, you can get the Martian Sphinx by John Brumat now broken down. It's in a serial format. That's how we actually do it. We can get the whole kitten caboodle, as I say, now. And the end of the month, or the 1st of March, you will get the £5 tier. We'll get that in serial format each month. Week and it is introduced and ran by our fabulous Amy H. Sturgis. Yes, with the voice of the one and only Mr. Drew Sebatidi, who is the host of our Tales to Terrify. Yes. So we will kick off with the main fiction. And like I say, it is Ian Waits and the story is Montpellier. Ian Waits lives in a sleepy Cambridgeshire village with his partner, Helen, and a manic Cocker Spaniel called Bundle, a writer and editor of science fiction and fantasy. He is the author of seven novels, the co-author of two more, and has seen more than 70 of his short stories published. He has edited more than 30, oh man, 30 anthologies. Ian served a term as director of the Science Fiction Writers of America and the director of the British Science Fiction Association, an organisation he chaired for five years. In 2006, Ian found founded, shall I say, a multiple award winning independent publisher at Newcom Press by accident and he continues to be baffled by the number of titles the imprint has produced. Now this story is narrated by Mark Killerfool. Mark, the encaffeinated one, Killerfool loves fiction so much that he's written some such as the Parsec-nominated Tainted Rose, read quite a lot a library of over a thousand half-read books and grown and now narrates them, some Times actually recorded them for others. he can be heard frequently on chsrFm.canada and have two shows regularly appear as podcasts and it can found at encaffeinated.ca and the weirdshow.com. He likes cats enough to pet them but not enough to own one and computers enough to own several but never pet one. He will someday write a million words, but at this rate, that will require life extension, so he eagerly awaits the ability to be uploaded to into a computer. If that hasn't already happened, then this is only a simulation. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present...
3: Montpellier by Ian Waits Montpellier is a shithole. I didn't want to go there in the first place, but nor did anyone else, and I was too slow in coming up with an excuse. There are four of them. Montpellier, Biscay, Siena, and Detroit. Officially termed Habitat Complexes, they are locally known as the Four Horsemen. War hasn't actually broken out there yet, but three out of four ain't bad. Besides, give it time. The horsemen form an off-kilter diamond in an unfashionable downtown suburb of Victoria, the part of the city the tourists never see. Up down the theme is eco-balance and elegance, leafy avenues lined with glitzy storefronts, pocket parks and hidden arboretum with tinkling water features and shaded paths and flower beds, all designed to relax the weary shopper after a morning's indulgence. Downtown... Not so much. Anything growing has been eaten, smoked, or chopped down for winter fuel long ago. I took the subway, not wanting to risk my own vehicle anywhere near the place. A state-of-the-art security system doesn't discourage the resourceful thief. It merely inspires them. I should know. You see, my mistrust of the horseman isn't born of a cultural prejudice or media-fed ignorance. Quite the opposite. I was born here, in Montpellier. That's why when this job was past me, it stuck, having already been shifted hastily along by a number of wiser colleagues, the assumption being that my heritage would give me some sort of advantage. Like hell. Anyone born in the horseman spends their waking hours dreaming of getting out and automatically despises those who've managed to... As I exited the subway, it was raining, a monotonous drizzle, not heavy but relentless, as if determined to pummel the world into submission by a process of attrition. Around me were small houses with leaky roofs and water pooling in their doorways. Dark scowls followed me on the road, nosy old women peering out from the windows, round shouldered punks sheltering in porches. I didn't fit. My clothes marked me as an outsider. Oh, I'd tried to dress down, but these days, even my taddiest gear made me look like an uptown fuckwit that had got off on the wrong stop. If the horsemen form a diamond, it's a rough one, knobbly and uncut. The components are towering edifices that truss up from the low rise streets like broken teeth dislodged from the jawbone of some long dead leviathan. Around and between them, the squalor is leaked outward, uniting the district in poverty and grime. But that's how it's always seemed to me. Truth is, that this was a run-down neighborhood before the horsemen were constructed, while they were being constructed, and ever since they came to dominate the skyline, that's just how it is. Self-contained communities with spacious apartments, schools, parks, shops, health centers. Everything necessary to ensure a decent standard of living. The habitats were supposed to change all that. Not that anyone local ever bought into the hype. Sure enough, the money ran out. The promised support dried up. Immediately after the official opening... Pats on the back and self congratulatory handshakes all around, despite the project being delivered nearly a year late, the authorities forgot about downtown, turning their attention elsewhere. Others moved in to fill the void. Ill conceived and chronically underfunded, the new communities floundered before they'd properly begun. Downtown won. Instead of lifting the whole district out of the relentless mire of poverty, as idealists had predicted, the habitats were dragged down into it. The horsemen were born. They became the symbol of everything squalid and distasteful about downtown, both in public perception and in reality. Any wonder I didn't relish coming back here? Ahead of me rose the jagged outline of the horsemen with Montpellier the closest, at the southern tip of the diamond. At odd moments, the sun struggled to break through, a watery orb drooping low and miserable over the city, as if even it had fallen victim to the general malaise and lacked the energy to climb higher. Presumably there was a rainbow somewhere, but not here. I trudged forward, hands in pockets, staring at the puddles, avoiding eye contact. I wasn't really expecting trouble, at least nothing I couldn't handle. But out here at the periphery, you never could tell. The punks hanging around at this point were outliers, petty dealers and hotheads at the bottom of the pecking order, minnows. Even the minnows had teeth, though, and there was no guarantee that one of them, anxious to build a rep or simply board, mightn't fancy shaking down a stranger just for the hell of it. So I kept my head bowed. "'having neither the time nor the patience to spare. "'I was fully expecting to be challenged on reaching Mount Pallier itself, "'but that was fine. "'My employers benefited from off-world backing. "'The petty ganglords who squabbled over the horsemen's avenues and corridors "'weren't about to risk messing with that sort of muscle. "'And if an ambitious lieutenant took it into their head to take me on, "'more fool them. "'Not so long ago I had been where they were now.' Except that I was better, which is how I got out. Funny thing about being a lookout. You have to make it seem you're loitering without actually loitering at all. I spotted the first three as I came up the entrance. Not the main entrance. Montpellier doesn't have a main entrance. The black identifying this one had been defaced, but I didn't need it. This was SE3 Red. Red the red, indicating which quadrant of the habitat the entrance led into, so why they bothered with the southeast bid is anyone's guess. I had a total of nine customers to call on, and four of them lived in red, so it seemed as good a place as any to start. Personal visits weren't exactly the norm, but nine customers defaulting within the same week made for exceptional circumstances. Finding three kids by the entrance didn't come as a surprise. Their avatars did. A crouching scorpion flickered in and out of view around the lanky skinny lad, tail raised to match his height, sting to the fore. That one was familiar. Scorpions have been a major presence in red since my time. The other two, a vortex of swirling wind that circled the swarthy girl, and the menacing black-furred ape sported by the twitchy, stocky boy were news to me. Gangs came and went, and the horsemen with such rapidity it was hard to keep track. The fun part, when you don't recognize gang affiliations, is to allocate your own. Doubtless, these two belonged to something related to tornadoes and gorillas, respectively, but I chose to think of them as windy and baboon. The surprise lay in the variety. Entrances were coveted as income generators. Security normally represented the gang in possession, and this had always been Scorpion territory. It wasn't unheard of for gang members to intermingle socially, but at a gate? The girl took the lead, stepping out from the overhang she'd been sheltering under to confront me. The other two backed her up, Scorpion to the left, Baboon to the right. "'You lost?' Rain dripped off the peak of her sodden cap. She didn't look especially menacing, despite her best attempt. No, I assured her. Official business. I activated my own avatar. I didn't sport mine all the time. Such things aren't appropriate to the circles I tend to move in. But it was there when needed. Unlike theirs, mine was a seamless projection. It didn't flicker on and off so that one moment you were staring at a stylized emblem, the next the person behind it. In my stead, the kids would now be facing a solid-seeming white-cowled figure, face invisible within a deep hood, both hands gripping the pommel of a broadsword with its tip resting on the ground. "'Saflik,' the girl hissed. "'It means purity. My employers were idealists.' And the name held significance for them that was lost on me. Its impact wasn't. All three kids tensed, and I could swear the baboon actually shuffled back a step. I killed the Avatar and smiled. It took a moment, but the girl stepped aside. I didn't doubt that somebody had instructed her to do so, whispering in her ear. Without another word, I walked forward two to my left, one to my right. All three of them looked relieved to see me pass. There were no actual doors, just an archway. The horsemen were never meant to be sealed, communities merely self-sufficient. The planners had no intention of either locking the world out or the inhabitants in. Now that I was here, I dropped the act. No more skulking, no more deference. I belonged here. I owned this place. A man called Baxter was supposed to run the Scorpions these days. After my time, and I hadn't met him, he would already be aware of my presence. Maybe others were too, still couldn't get my head around the mixed nature of the reception committee. Things in Montpellier were clearly changing. A door slammed somewhere over to my left as I walked through the archway and into the open courtyard beyond. There was nobody in sight, nobody at all. The weather seemed wilder here, perhaps funneled by the solid block of building that surrounded the exposed courtyard. Whipped by the wind, rain beat against the paving and the cobbles in a mixed tattoo, barely louder than a sigh but never letting up, nature's drumroll heralding my arrival. I heard the laughter and shriek of young children at play from high above, the sound made flat and oddly muted by the rain, and a woman shouting at them to shut up, But these were isolated noises. Otherwise, there was just the rain. It was bizarre. This was a community. Where was everybody? Had they fled, warned of my approach? Maybe they were just simply staying inside to keep dry. I took the walkway on my right, impressed that the thing was still working. It hadn't always been when I was a kid. There was no stairs or elevators in the horsemen Just long sweeping paths and travelators like this Which carried the populace up or down At a gentle incline Accessibility was king The mural that adorned the wall beside me Had been hijacked years ago Originally it depicted an idealized pastoral scene In 3D relief Cornfield swaying in a gentle breeze A stand of trees Birds flitting around a hedgerow with light changing throughout the day to reflect the hour and prevailing weather conditions. Doubtless meant to lighten our spirits. It had been completely irrelevant to everyone here. Currently, my trip upwards was accompanied by a scene of bumbling erotica in painstaking close-up. Not sure if this was intended to be comical, but that's how it came across. Giant buttocks heaving as I passed. In an hour or so, there would be something different depending on the hacker's whim. I stepped off at the third level, which provoked an unexpected wave of nostalgia. I'd grown up not far from here. Ahead, in a sheltered corridor, a man sat in an old wooden chair, the first person I'd seen since entering Montpellier. He was leaning forward, working on something. This, too, stimulated a welter of memories. I knew this man. Case sitting outside his home watching the world go by, just as he always had. As I drew closer, I could see that he was whittling away at a piece of pale wood with a penknife, too early to say what he was carving. He'd changed. His face had wrinkled into a cartographer's dream, a canvas of deep crevices and mysterious contours. Still alert, though, still savvy, Still, case. He looked up as I approached, sharp eyes peering like obsidian coals from his weathered visage. Horner, he said, his voice as strong as ever. Welcome home. The way he'd spoke, you'd think I had just popped out for some groceries rather than been gone for the best part of a decade. Case, I acknowledged. How's things? Case had been a big noise back in the day Not gang-affiliated, not beholden to any of the petty lords Who came and went more frequently than a cat takes a piss But somehow respected by all of them Case didn't need to move around much The world came to him He had women, too One in particular always used to give the adolescent me a hard-on Lizzie, her name was Not exactly a classic beauty, but you knew she'd be worth the effort. Dyed blonde hair, big boobs that seemed on the verge of bursting out from her tight leather jacket, and a smile that made you think you stood a chance, even when deep down you knew that was bullshit. I wondered if Lizzie was still around, whether she was still with Case, and I pictured how she'd look now, her teeth yellowed from smoke's, and her big tits saggy and pendulous or shriveled and wrinkled like prunes. One of her knowing smiles would probably still get my juices going, though. Same old, same old, Kay said. You got business here? Yes. Safflick business. How well-connected was he, anyway? Yes. Good luck with that. He went back to his whittling. I walked on, wondering what that had been about. Sure as hell, the encounter hadn't happened by chance. Word must have reached him straight from the gate, and Case wanted to let me know that he knew why I was here, but to what purpose? To warn me? To warn me off? Or simply to prepare me for something? And who did Case represent? One thing was certain— There was far more going on at Montpellier than anyone back at Safflick realized. I rounded a corner and a snarling demon leapt off the wall to attack me. I ignored it and kept walking. The graffiti was getting more sophisticated. This one had found a way around my blocks. It brought a small sense of pride. Good to know that an ingenuity like this was still alive and kicking in Montpellier. First call on my list was one Eleanor Ellie Drew, 73 Scarlet Walk. To get there, I'd have to go out into the open again. Rain obscured the view across the opposite buttress of apartments, part of Blue Quadrant. The sun had now disappeared altogether, presumably writing the day off and determining to save its energy for tomorrow. Good move. I scrolled through Eleanor's details, scant though they were, 26 years old, Two kids, three and five, fathers unknown, busted three times for prostitution, the most recent two years ago. No apparent means of financial support, no apparent reason to love reality, in short, ideal customer material. My employers had their fingers in many pies. One of the most lucrative was narcotics, e-drugs, no pills swallowed, no needles acquired, Chemical narcotics were as passé as dinosaurs. Every aspect of a deal now took place online, with e-hits sold in batches. Data squirts that, when triggered, delivered stimulation directly to specifically targeted areas of the brain. Swift, clean, no-nonsense transactions. The lowlifes in the horsemen get the crude, straightforward shit, far less refined than the hits peddled to lawyers and politicians to businesswomen and bureaucrats who formed our client base uptown. Many of those hits were personalized, tailored to an individual's genetic signature. But whatever the grade, the result was still as addictive as anything a chemist might cook up. And that was the clincher. To lose one client could be chalked up as bad luck. People died, got thrown in jail, or found the inspiration to try to kick the habit. But nine, in the same place, at the same time, went way beyond coincidence. It meant something else. Competition. Somebody was muscling in on Safflick business. I knocked. She was tall, thin to the point of being gaunt, eyes as blank as her prospects, resigned to whatever crap life threw at her. Ellie Drew? My name's Horner. I'm from Safflick. "'Yeah, I've been expecting you.' Evidently. She wasn't alone, as I discovered when she took me through to the sitting room. A man lounged on the sofa. She didn't introduce him, may not even have known his name. Black, built like a compact car. His left arm rested along the back of the settee, stretching from one end to the other. The can of beer he clutched in his right hand was dwarfed by his fist.' A mean-looking bastard, for all that he was trying to appear, relaxed. The image of a scorpion flickered on and off around him. Her two kids were nowhere in sight. The decks had been cleared in anticipation of a fight. No point in delaying. I already knew how this was going to pan out, but I had my part to play. "'We've been worried about you, Ellie,' I said. "'You haven't renewed.' "'and we're concerned that something may have... "'She don't need any more your shit,' the big man said without looking at me. "'He was staring straight ahead, as if absorbed in VR, "'but he wasn't wearing a visor and I couldn't detect any lenses. "'If it's been a tough month and you can't meet the payment,' I said, "'ignoring him and addressing her, "'that's not a problem. We can work something out.' "'It ain't,' big man said.' She just don't want what you're sellin'. He still refused to look at me. Could I take him? Probably. But it wouldn't be quick or easy. I glanced at Ellie and saw the first hint of animation in her eyes. Desperation. She didn't want to see her place trashed. She was scared of me, maybe of him, and certainly of what we were likely to do between us. I took pity. I didn't doubt now that all nine of my errant customers would have chaperones. And I didn't doubt that there would be a fight brewing somewhere down the line. But it didn't have to be here. Ellie was no different from my mom, rest her soul. Or from thousands of others like her throughout the horsemen. Just trying to get by. She didn't need this. Think about what I said, Ellie. I'll call back later. As I left, the big man said something... I didn't catch the words, but I didn't need to. The tone said more than enough. Something scornful. Something derogatory. Something about me being a coward. That almost did it. Almost had me tossing all my good intentions aside and turning around to smash his smug face in. But I kept walking. Outside, six doors down, were two kids. A scorpion and a wildcat. "'another of the long-established gangs dating back to my day. "'Remember what I said about loitering? "'They were doing that. "'I was about to turn right toward the next address on my list, "'but changed my mind. "'Instead, I headed left toward them. "'If there was going to be a confrontation, "'might as well be out here in the open, "'rather than in someone's home. "'The space was narrow if it came to a fight.' with a sheer drop on one side and a brick wall on the other. But what the hell? The Scorp was a scrawny girl. The cat, a tall lad, who hadn't quite grown into his frame yet, still looked the greater threat. I bore down on them before they could do much more than stop loitering. Take me to see Baxter, whoever the fuck is running things nowadays, I said. The cat attempted a sneer. It looked comical. Why would Baxter want... I hit him. He went down in a heap, out for the count with one punch. I figured with him out of the way, the girl would be easy. My mistake. She kicked me. Nothing behind it. She was too slight to do real damage, but well-directed and delivered like a pro. Swivel, kick, spin away, bouncing on her toes, ready for the next strike. I fainted towards her, and she was at it again. A roundhouse kick that caught me on the hip before she danced back out of reach. That one hurt. Shit. I knew what this was. Kicks. A hybrid martial art that evolved in downtown, marrying together elements from various classic disciplines. And she knew her stuff. I got lucky, though. As I fainted again and she kicked again, I guessed right and caught her foot, fastening onto her ankle and refusing to let go. Like I said, there was nothing of her. Before she could twist free, I had both hands locked on, swinging her around to slam against the wall. She struck the brickwork hard, but that didn't stop her cursing and bucking and kicking at me with the other foot. I tugged and heaved and swung her into the wall again. The second time did the trick. The fight had mostly gone out of her as I dragged her upward, holding her by her throat. Now, where can I find Baxter? Right here. It was a woman's voice coming from behind me. I turned to see a dozen or more punks crowding the terrace, and they all looked eager for a piece of me. Scorpions, wildcats, dragons, pirates, baboons, and more I didn't recognize flickered in and out like specters at a feast. As one, the front rank parted, and a woman strode through. Hourglass figure, well-built with a mass of blonde hair, older than any of the others, and I knew her. Lizzie, "'No sagging tits, no yellowing teeth or pasty jowls. "'In fact, she looked fantastic. "'You can call me Baxter.' and she grinned, clearly enjoying my surprise. "'What, horny boy?' "'The name she'd always teased me with. "'You expected someone with balls? "'Now put Asa down with you. "'We need to talk.' "'With that, she turned and walked away.' the gang members shuffling aside as if she were some kind of royalty. I dropped Kicking Girl and followed. She led the way to an apartment, no different to any of the others, except that a scorpion and a lion stood sentry by the door. "'Beer?' she asked once we were inside. Nobody else had come in, the motley escort that had followed us here stopping short at the threshold. "'Sure,' The place was as ordinary as it had seemed on the outside. Nothing gaudy, nothing flash, nothing to suggest that here lived the ruling power in Montpellier. We sat on a sofa, angled toward each other, knees almost touching. Two old friends catching up. There was no hint of tension in her posture, no suggestion that she was anything other than relaxed and in control. Wish I could have said the same. Here was the woman I'd fantasized about as a kid, looking hotter than ever, when I was alone with her. At the same time, here was the person I had to deal with, make demands of, and ensure she towed the line. I didn't know where to start. Fortunately, she did. I want your help, honey boy, she said. I'm doing things here, important things, but it takes time and I need the space to operate without saphlic interfering. These e drugs your employers are pushing, they're screwing things up big time. They're designed to be addictive, stimulating the brain to produce a surge of dopamine and controlling its interactions with other neurotransmitters like glutamate. You know about dopamine? Impressive stuff, powerful stuff. It not only induces the sense of pleasure, of euphoria, but lays down the memory of that pleasure in effect rewiring the brain to crave it again and again. saflik have hit on a gold mine. The only real outlay for these e-hits lies in the initial development and programming. Once you have that, you can produce and distribute to your heart's content at the push of a button, which is why saflik can afford to flood the markets with cheap, low-grade narc. It's money for nothing. "'But what is the market here at the Horsemen really worth to them "'compared to what they get from the movers and shakers uptown?' "'Not much, but that wasn't the point. "'Saffalick wouldn't view things that way. "'No matter how trivial the market, it was their market, "'and they couldn't afford to be seen as weak. "'You know what life's like here,' Lizzie continued. "'Is it any wonder that our people seize an affordable escape when it's offered?' "'By preying on their weakness, Saflik are destroying this place. "'How can we make progress when everyone with a scrap of drive and imagination "'gets hooked on their shit? "'So I'm doing something about it.' "'You've united the gangs,' I said. "'A bland statement that didn't come close to in conveying how impressed I was. "'I would have sworn blind that gang unity was impossible, "'that enmity and petty rivalries too deeply rooted.' Yet, somehow, Lizzie had achieved it. Eventually, she said. You've no idea how hard that was, or how long it took. With Case's help, I've been working on this since before you left Montpellier. But that's only the beginning. Now we want to move on, to really build something, to let the habitats shake off the shackles of being the four horsemen and become what they were always meant to be place where people can thrive, not merely survive. So our programmers have come up with a way to counter your e-drugs, to dampen the release of dopamine and rewire the brain so that it no longer recalls the hit as unbearably pleasurable but merely pleasant. Doesn't mean that people can enjoy high now and again, just that they don't crave it. I stared at her. I'd never heard of anything like this before. Seriously? Yeah, I told you. We mean business clearly. All we need is someone to persuade Safflick to back off. I didn't like the way this was going. Not one bit. Now, wait a minute. We've got a chance here, horny boy, she pressed. An opportunity to really make something of this place at last. You're one of the lucky ones. You got out, but what about all the people who haven't or never will? God only knew what she had me down as. "'You're overestimating my importance,' I told her. "'I don't think so. "'Saflik sent you here to report on what's going on. "'By definition, they're going to listen to what you have to say. "'That gives you power.' "'For fuck's sake, Lizzie, you don't know these people. "'Saflik aren't interested in making a better future for Montpellier or anyone else. "'To them, it's all about access to market and profit, and you're blocking the way to both.' However I try to paint things, they're just going to see you as a threat. Not even a threat, more an inconvenience. They'll have to make an example of you. Unless, what? Unless you can persuade them, it's worth their while not to. Unless you can offer them something in return, something more valuable than you're asking them to give up. The higher-ups at Safflick couldn't muster an altruistic bone between them, but they were capable of seeing the bigger picture. Go on. I was thinking on my feet. But as I spoke, I knew that this was right, that it offered a chance, the only chance, for Lizzie and her vision of a brighter future for Montpellier and its people, my people. The programmers and splicers, the hackers and free surfers, the kids who come up with the countermeasures of the e-drugs, the ones who hijacked the murals, and can design graffiti that sneaks past the strongest firewalls. That's what you offer them. I don't know. Think about it. This wouldn't be a betrayal. You said it yourself. I got out. They can, too, in a way that'll benefit everyone. They can continue doing stuff for you, for the community, but also be on Saflik's payroll. Saflik would fall over backwards for talent like this. It was worth writing off a few low-grade drug contracts for. And they could do so without losing face, because they would be gaining a resource in exchange. Will they go for that? I'll make sure they do. Pitch it to them in a way they can't refuse. Tell them it's the only way your people will work for them. You've got skills here. That's your leverage. Use it. You can act as Saflik's agent, a recruiter. The horseman will become a kind of feeder project for grassroot talent... "'starting with Montpellier, and that'll buy you the time to complete what you've begun, "'the authority to push it through. "'Hell, Saflick might even pump some of their own money into what you're doing "'for that sort of opportunity.' "'I pause. "'There's just one thing. "'What? "'If I do this, I'm taking one hell of a risk. "'There's always a chance Safflick could reject the whole idea "'and stop trusting me as a result.' accuse me of going native i could lose everything so what's in it for me you want to cut not exactly i reached out and touched her knee she laughed a deep sultry sound really horny boy still even though i'm an old woman now not so old and uh, yeah She leant forward to plant a kiss on my cheek, and at the same time removed my hand from her knee. That's very flattering, but let's just see how all this pans out and take it from there, shall we? So I left without even copping a feel, but I brought with me the memory of her lips on my cheek, and I had hope, which is as much as I'd ever had where Lizzie was concerned. I also had hope for Montpellier
1: And there you go. Big thank you to Ian. Ian, thank you so much. That story was just fantastic, man. <laughs> the hairs on the back of your neck, man, just stand up. Ian, thank you so much. And Mark, man, Mark, that voice just grabs you, grabs you, and you forget you're the narrator. And that's, I've mentioned this a couple of times on the show, once you forget the narrator, which is, I'm not, you know, that's what you want. That's the key. And that's what you do. You just get trapped into that story. Fantastic. Mark, thank you so much. Keep on knocking them out for starships over. That's lovely. So, it is. By God, it is. It's Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. Jim, sir. Greetings and Nueva Annular Retributions, my
2: Sigma-tactically salubrious listeners. And welcome to this January 2019 science news update. I'm your host for this tritely, suppositoric science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Instead of Idiot scientists of the Month this month, I am instead turning to Idiot Publishers of the Month instead. What insanity am I talking about? Well, I read an article in Wired by one of their staff writers, Joy Ito, and it struck in me a serious chord especially since the academic publishing industry affects me, well, pretty much every day. So what am I babbling about? Well, as Joy Ito points out, science is built, enhanced, and developed through the open and structured sharing of knowledge. and We can all agree on that. If there isn't open access to knowledge everywhere, then nobody really can make much progress. Yet some publishers charge so much for subscriptions to their academic journals that even the libraries of the world's wealthiest universities cannot afford them. Harvard announced a couple of weeks ago that they can no longer afford the prices, for example. And if Harvard can't afford those prices, what chances do universities like mine have? So those publishers' profit margins rival those of the most profitable companies in the world, even though research is largely underwritten by governments. And publishers don't pay authors, or researchers, or the peer reviewers who evaluate those works. I can vouch for that. How is such an absurd structure able to sustain itself, and how might we change it? When the Internet emerged in the 90s, people began predicting a new, more robust era of scholarship based on access to knowledge for all. The web, that had started as a research network, now had an easy-to-use interface and a protocol to connect to all published knowledge, making each citation just a click away. Uh, Well, that was all theory. Again, I can speak from personal knowledge of this. Instead, academic publishers started to consolidate. They solidified their grip on the rights to prestigious journals, allowing them to charge for access and exclude the majority of the world from reading research publications all the while extracting billions in dollars of subscription fees from university libraries and corporations. This meant that some publishers, such as Elsevier, the science, technology, and medicine-focused branch of the RELX Group publishing conglomerate, were able to extract huge profit margins. In the case of Elsevier, in 2017, they were more profitable than Apple or Google, Or Microsoft. And in most scholarly fields, it's the most important journals that continue to be secured behind paywalls, a structure that doesn't just affect the spread of information. Those journals have what we call high impact factors, and those can skew academic hiring and promotions in a kind of self fulfilling cycle that works like this. Typically, anyone applying for an academic job. Again, I know this from experience and the fact that I have been on a number of search committees and chaired them. Anybody applying for an academic job is evaluated by a committee and by other academics who write letters of evaluation for them. In most fields, papers published in peer-reviewed journals are a critical part of the evaluation process. And the so-called impact factor, which is based on the citations that a journal gets over time, well, they're important evaluators typically are, well, pretty busy academics who may lack a depth of expertise in a candidate's particular research topic. And they are prone to skim the submitted papers and kind of rely heavily on the number of papers published and the impact factors of the journals that they're published in. I know that doesn't seem fair, but they use that as a proxy for the journal prestige and rigor in their assessment of the qualifications of a candidate. And so young researchers are forced to prioritize publications in journals with high impact factors. Faulty as they are, if they want tenure or promotions, they pretty much have to do that. Again, I know this from experience. The consequence is that important work gets locked up behind paywalls and remains largely inaccessible to anybody not in a major research lab or a university who can afford it. This includes taxpayers, who actually funded the research in the first place. It also includes the developing world and the emerging world of non-academic researchers and startup labs, who probably shouldn't have access to that stuff anyway, but they don't have access. Edo points to whatever places where publishing is trying to break down those paywalls. First, in 2011, Alexandra Elbakyan, started SciHub, a website that provides free access to millions of otherwise inaccessible academic papers. She was based in Kazakhstan, far from the courts where academic publishers could easily bring lawsuits. Elbakian says that Elsevier's mission was to, quote, make uncommon knowledge common, unquote. And she jokes that she is just trying to help the company do that because it seems they can't do that themselves. While Elbachian has been widely criticized for her blatant disregard for copyrights, SciHub has become a popular tool among academics, even at major universities, because it removes the friction of the paywalls and provides links to collaborators beyond the paywalls. Second, the open access process began about 10 years ago, and this is a worldwide effort to make scholarly research literature freely accessible online. Essentially, researchers upload the unpublished versions of their papers to a repository focused on subject matter or operated by an academic institution. The movement was sparked by services like Archive.org, which you've heard me mention a number of times on this program. And uh, Cordell started Archive.org back in 1991. And it entered the mainstream when Harvard established the first U.S. self-archiving policy In 2008, and other research universities around the world have followed. Third, lots of journals are pretty disgusted with their publishers, which has led to a silent revolution of these journals becoming open access. Of course, if a journal becomes open access and loses that paywall, somebody still has to pay for the articles that are published. Unfortunately, that falls upon schmucks like me. Many of these journals now charge authors publication fees that allow them to stay open access. I was surprised a few months back when one unnamed journal sent me an $800 bill. I asked them what the heck they were thinking, and they explained that I had apparently missed the fact that they were now a pay-to-play journal. They were not when I last published there about 10 years ago. I was not thrilled to say the least, but my article was already published and out there in the public, so at that point, they agreed to waive the fee after some serious legal threats from my end, although I suspect the university council would have just agreed to paying them if I had actually gone that far. Anyway, even when you actually have an open access journal, it does not seem that way. Charging authors has actually become a way of life for more recent entries into the journal race and they have been charging more and more over the last few years. uh one open access genetics journal that i published in about 10 years ago they they asked for about $400 in charges back then and now they charge about $1200 US at least they were upfront about the charges so even open access has a price according to eto we should be able to pressure open access publishers to lower their publication charges. He makes a good point that these companies will continue to extract high fees even in an open access world. So far, they have successfully prevented collective bargaining through confidentiality agreements and other legal means. So, it makes you question who exactly the idiot is here. Okay, let's get on with the first story of the night. Have you ever wondered where your mitochondria came from? I suspect probably not, even if you thought about your mitochondria at all. The last time you probably thought about your mitochondria was probably when they taught you that it was the powerhouse of the cell in grade school. Cool, powerhouse, make energy, me die without mitochondria. Yes, mitochondria are important, and yes, you die without mitochondria. But what's interesting about them... Is the evolution of mitochondria and where they might have come from in the first place. Uh, most people never really go beyond make energy. So it always strikes them as amazing when you tell them that mitochondria are a bit of a mystery. They and chloroplasts, which I won't talk about here, are weird in the organelle family. They have their own DNA, like submicroscopic cells. But they also make their own ribosomal RNA and their own ribosomes. Uh, They have their own uh, transfer, tRNA. They make their own mRNA. And they reproduce by binary fission, not like animal or plant cells. Also, bacteria don't have mitochondria, but so-called higher organisms like us do. So if all life evolved from the same common ancestor, which did not have mitochondria, then where did they come from? Well, the most commonly agreed thought right now of where mitochondria came from is something called the endosymbiote theory. And the theory is this, that once upon a time, billions of years ago, archaea bacteria, archaea bacteria are larger, more complex bacteria, more similar to human cells. They swallowed up and captured the simpler, smaller type of bacteria called eubacteria. And these were the two earliest forms of life. At first, the smaller bacteria may have lived inside the archaeobacteria as endosymbionts, that is, independent organisms that cooperate with their hosts. The simple bacteria gave its host extra energy in order to grow bigger and get faster and more complex. The host gave the captured eubacteria extra food and kept it alive and happy. Over time, the mitochondria lost many of their genes and eventually became an integral part of the cell and were stuck there inside the archaeobacteria forever. These mixed cells of archaeobacteria plus eubacteria inside became what is known as eukaryotic cells. These cells with a nucleus contained mitochondria and became our most ancient ancestors. And not just for humans, but plants and animals and fungi and now almost all eukaryotic cells contain mitochondria. However, Dr. Peter Schultz of Scripps Institute insists that if you want to prove something is true in genetics, then you better be able to reproduce it in a laboratory. So Schultz and his colleagues created a hybrid cell. What they did is, is they fused two lab organisms. And the two lab organisms are baker's yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and the common gut bacteria that everybody knows, E. coli. The results of this work were reported in the October 2018 issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And none of this was very easy to do, let me tell you. So the way Schultz did it was, they first disabled a gene in the yeast mitochondria so that the organelles couldn't produce chemical energy in the form of adenosine triphosphate. ATP, which you've probably heard of. E. coli were engineered to lack a gene needed to make the B vitamin thiamine, which bacteria need to live. The team also outfitted the bacteria with a transport protein that can move ATP and its precursor, ADP, in or out of the cell. When the bacteria are put inside the yeast cells, the bacteria supply the ATP the yeast needed to live, and the yeast made thymine for the bacteria. Now, mind you, it wasn't a perfect arrangement. The yeast kept digesting the bacteria, so Schulz's team equipped the E. coli with a special protein called a snare protein from Chlamydia trachomatis, which can live inside human cells and cause the sexually transmitted disease of chlamydia. Snare proteins can prevent a host cell's digestive organelles called lysosome from coming together to dismantle the invading microbes. Snare, outfitted E. coli, eventually were able to grow inside the yeast cell. The researchers found that the hybrid yeast bacteria grew for more than 40 generations. This is all very cool, but there's no way to know the exact environmental and physiological conditions that microbes face that actually led to the formation of eukaryotic cells a billion and a half years ago. It seems obvious that exchanging energy for nutrients may have been what pushed the bacteria and the archaea together to join forces, but it was probably more complicated than that. If you think about it, why would the captured bacteria supply ATP to the cell and ship them out? Wouldn't it make more sense for it to just use up all the sugar that it stole from the bigger bacteria and then keep the energy? Why didn't the symbiote end up becoming a parasite. Well, one explanation is that it started out as a parasite, but eventually it lost its ability to live outside the host cell, and it was forced to become an endosymbiont and play fair with the bigger bacteria. This complicated new study may explain how it went from being a parasite to a symbiont. Next story. We follow the continually changing face of the exoplanet search. Yay! So I have been following the exoplanet search for you listeners and myself for the last six or seven years. Every month or two, there's an interesting break, and I report on what is going on in the great black out there. So NASA's Transmitting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, TESS, tests, was launched in April 2018. And TESS's specialty is to find exoplanets. TESS was designed to be a follow-up to the prolific Kepler Space Telescope, which went dark in October 2018, after about 10 years of observation. Like Kepler, TESS searches for planets by watching for dips in starlight as planets cross, or transit as they call it, in front of their stars. Unlike Kepler, which stared unblinkingly at a single patch of sky for a decade, TESS scans a new segment of sky every month. Over two years, TESS will cover the entire 360 degrees of sky visible from the Earth's orbit. In the first four segments of his search around our sky, TESS has already spotted eight confirmed planets and more than 320 unconfirmed candidates. This was reported by Dr. Zhu Chelsea Wang of MIT at the American Astronomical Society meeting in Seattle about three weeks ago. At any rate, the findings of TESS are really stirring things up in the extrasolar crowd right now. Why? Well, let's take the third planet found by TESS, HD 21749B. This one is only 52 light years away. It has the lowest temperature found so far for a planet orbiting a bright nearby star. Wang reported this at the meeting. Wang also said that HD 21749b makes a great candidate for follow-up observations with future telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope scheduled to launch in 2021. Webb will use starlight filtering through the atmospheres of planets like HD yada yada To measure those atmospheres properties and search for signs of life. Wang says, if we want to study atmospheres of cool planets, this is the one to start with. Of course, to astronomers, cool is a relative term. HD Yada Yada is still probably too hot and gassy to host life. Its orbit takes thirty six Earth days, the longest known orbital period for planets transiting bright stars within a 100 light-years of our sun. That leaves it at a distance from the star that should heat the planet's surface to about 150 degrees Celsius, which is too hot for liquid water. We all know water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. And at 2.84 times Earth's size and 23 times Earth's mass, its density suggests it probably has a thick atmosphere, unlike Earth's life-friendly one. Despite its heat, this planet is still, well, tepid compared with most of the scorched worlds whose atmospheres astronomers can probe right now. We talked about TESS's first find, Pi Mense C, on this podcast back in September 2018. That planet orbits its star every 6.27 days and is about 2.14 times Earth size and about five times Earth's mass, giving it a density similar to pure water. Wang says, quote, the weirdest thing about Pi Mensi C is the company it keeps. Previous observations show that the star Pi Mensi also has a planet 10 times the mass of Jupiter that orbits every 5.7 years. That planet, Pi Mensi B, revolves on a wildly eccentric orbit swinging between the distance of Earth and the distance of Jupiter from its star. That is the most extreme system we know of that has this type of architecture, Unquote. The second planet found by TESS, LHS3844b, has a radius just 1.3 times that of Earth's, but it swings around its planet every 11 hours, giving it a surface temperature of about 540 degrees Celsius. Wang says, quote, LHS-3844B is like a lava world, and probably pretty unpleasant for life, unquote. Wang finishes with this, quote, TESS has completed about one-twelfth of its first sky survey, but we are already writing proposals to extend its initial two-year mission. TESS's orbit is held stable by the moon's gravity, so it doesn't need to spend any fuel to stay put. The fuel on board used to change the direction of the telescope points is enough to last for three hundred years. We are talking centuries, not decades here, of stability. TASS is really going to be an important part of our astronomical efforts for the next decade and for more to come. Unquote. The next story struck me as interesting for two reasons. First, it seemed very counterintuitive when I first read it, until it was clearly explained and second, it involves Alzheimer's, and our understanding of how the disease process actually works in Alzheimer's. So my father, who has Alzheimer's, immediately came to mind. So the story came out of the lab of Dr. Eduardo Moreno, the principal investigator of the Cell Fitness Lab at Champlemont Center for the Unknown in Lisbon, Portugal. His paper, published in the journal Cell Reports last month, is entitled, quote, Culling less fit neurons protects against amyloid beta-induced brain damage and cognitive and motor decline, unquote. So what the heck does that mean? Well, for years, it's been believed by researchers that neuronal cell death in Alzheimer's disease is inevitably detrimental a finding that could have important therapeutic implications. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Killing neurons in the brain should be considered a bad thing. I mean, if it leads to memory loss and cognitive ability, loss of cognitive ability, it's not not that fantastic. However, Moreno's work does suggest something else. His results suggest that a cell quality control process known as cell competition through which substandard or abnormal cells in the brain and other tissues are eliminated, has a beneficial effect in Alzheimer's, acting to remove toxic peptide-expressing neurons and helping to hold back or protect against disease progression. Tests show that blocking this natural cell culling process in a fruit fly model of Alzheimer's resulted in worse symptoms and accelerated neurodegeneration. Moreno says, quote, our results suggest that neuronal death is beneficial because it removes neurons that are affected by noxious beta amyloid aggregates from brain circuits, and having those dysfunctional neurons is worse than losing them. Death of unfit neurons is beneficial, protecting against disease progression by restoring motor and cognitive functions, unquote. So multicellular organisms have evolved mechanisms to help maintain tissue homeostasis and integrity through development and all the way into aging. One of these mechanisms, called cell competition, effectively leads to the selection of the fittest cells in a tissue by enabling a comparison process between neighboring cells. And that leads to the least fit cell, well, undergoing suicide. Cell competition represents a key anti-aging mechanism throughout the body, and particularly in the brain. Moreno's team reasoned that the same cell comparison mechanisms that act to clear substandard cells during normal aging could feasibly be involved in diseases of accelerated aging, like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or Huntington's. The team's initial study suggested that neuronal expression of amyloid B in the fly's neurons changed the cell's fitness and induced cell elimination. When the researchers then blocked this naturally occurring neuronal fitness process that culls the cells, the animals exhibited worse memory problems, worse motor coordination, and faster neurodegeneration and mortality. In contrast, when the researchers boosted the process of fitness comparison, they sped up the death of unfit neurons, and that seemed to result in the recovery of the Alzheimer disease amyloid beta-expressing flies. Moreno says, quote, The flies almost behaved like normal flies with regard to memory formation, locomotive behavior, and learning at a time point when the control Alzheimer flies were already strongly affected, unquote. The researchers' results suggest that cell competition is still active in Alzheimer's and can help to hold back disease progression by eliminating affected neurons. So why is this important? Well, as it turns out, some neurochemical treatments for Alzheimer's actually inhibit the process of cell death. In other words, they block the process of culling that's there to get rid of those most badly affected neurons. And that's not a good thing. It means that we may be making the disease worse with certain treatments because we do not understand the natural processes of cell clearance. If what Moreno is saying is true, then we need to back off and let the brain kill those badly behaving cells. Moreno concludes the article with the following, quote, Surprisingly, we found that neuronal death had a beneficial effect against beta-amyloid-dependent cognitive and motor decline. This finding challenges the commonly accepted idea that neuronal death is detrimental at all stages of the disease progression. We found that most amyloid-induced neuronal apoptosis is beneficial and likely acts to remove damaged and or dysfunctional neurons in an attempt to protect neural circuits from aberrant neuronal activation and impaired synaptic transmission." The last story of the night is about poop. What kind of poop? Well, wombat poop. Now, despite the fact that that does sound like a joke, it's, I'm serious. Your immediate question should be, why would wombat poop be at all of interest to me? Well, my answer would be because wombats are the only animals that we know of that poop in cubes. A couple of months back, in November 2018, this amazing science story was presented at the American Physical Society Division of Fluid Dynamics meeting. It was presented by Dr. David Hugh of Georgia Tech. He found that the varied elasticity of the wombat's intestine helps these marsupials to, quote, sculpt their scat into cube-like nuggets, unquote, instead of the round pellets, messy piles, or tubular coils made by other mammals. Why bother? Apparently, wombats prefer to mark their territories with small piles of stacked scat. Cuboid poop stacks better than round poop, and they don't roll away as easily. But as any biologist will tell you, cubic shapes in nature are very unusual. And if you're going to make cubes, it takes extra energy to make those flat surfaces of those sharp corners. So it's surprising that the wombat's intestines, which pretty much don't look any different than any other mammal's intestines, could create that shape. When an Australian colleague sent Hugh the intestines from two roadkill wombats that were just collecting frost in his freezer, well, Hugh says he quote, Open those intestines up like it was Christmas, unquote. Of course, the intestines were packed with poop, which made Hugh even happier. Hugh says that in humans, a poop-filled bit of intestine stretches out slightly. In wombats, the intestine stretches to two or three times its regular width to accommodate all that feces. Hugh used skinny balloons, the type that get sculpted into animals at carnivals, to inflate the intestines and measure that stretchiness in different places. Some regions were more stretchy, some were stiffer. Hugh thinks that the stiffer regions probably help create the distinct edges on the wombat poops as the waste moves through the gut. Sculpting the poop into cuboid nuggets appears to be a finishing touch for the wombat digestive tract. Over a typical six-meter-long wombat intestine, the poops take on distinct edges only in the last half-meter or so. Hugh says that up to that point, the waste is gradually solidifying as it moves through the gut. He also says, quote, The finished turds are especially dry and fibrous, which may help them retain their signature shape when they're squeezed out. They can be stacked or rolled like dice, standing up on any of their faces. I know, I've tried it, unquote. And let me be the first to say, ew, dice, poop, poop, dice? Ew. Anyway, the talk reports that in the wild, wombats deposit their droppings on top of rocks or logs as territory markers, sometimes forming small piles, and they seem to prefer to poop in elevated spots, but they're also limited by their stubby legs. To confirm that the elasticity variation really does form the cubes, Hugh is now trying to model the wombat digestive tract using pantyhose. Sure, why not? Pantyhose should work like intestines. Well, that's all for me for now. Happy New Year. Make sure you don't borrow pantyhose from Dr. Hugh. Always ask how much the publication charge is going to be. Let those crappy old rain cells just die out. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
1: Hey, Jim, we just keep on rolling them out there, lad. (laughs) Every month. Thank you so much, Jim. Always, I say, always a pleasure. So that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Fantastic man. Ian Waits, big thank you to Ian and Mark for that narration, just amazing. And you, young Mr. Campanella there on the science news. Listen, do support one period, it would help immensely. That would be fantastic. And I will see you next week. Until then, just like I say, good night from me. This
0: presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm time soon, can you reach me, is my signal getting through, turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you, this signal's going light speed, by the time I get my say, I might already be on to you, and on my way, but you're so far from here, Stop moving slow. So I'm waiting on your call at home, with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through town?